realized that she could make a difference by being a friend to refugees. There's not been a single day where that decision has been one that has proven anything less than life-giving. If someone you know struggles to welcome their newest neighbors, it's more likely going to be a friendship that changes that, not a list of facts. You're listening to Season 2 of Seeking Refuge, a podcast about the human stories behind refugees. Your host this week is Aidan Thomason. Here today with Brian Bollinger, the executive director of the Clarkston, Georgia-based nonprofit Friends of Refugees. Friends of Refugees seeks to empower refugees through opportunities and relationships that the organization facilitates. So thank you for coming on the show to talk to us, Brian. Is there anything you'd like to say to introduce yourself to the audience? I'd only say that our, our, our mission is uh, to empower refugees with opportunities for well-being, education, and employment. And so everything that we do here at Friends of Refugees will winds up following under one or more of those kind of three legs of that tripod. Perfect. I guess a first question to start off, why are those three pillars important? Why are those the three you guys stand on? You know, our vision at Friends of Refugees is to see people experiencing abundant life in flourishing communities. And while there is a lot that we could describe flourishing. While there is a lot under which we could encapsulate the idea of flourishing, we feel like well-being and education and employment is probably the farthest reaching, simplest terms that really capture uh, what it looks like when, when someone is well, when someone has the power of knowledge, and when someone has the, the dignity of good work. At the end of the day, it, it's hard to say that there's a whole lot outside of those parameters that is fundamentally critical to being a flourishing person, you know, to be physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, to identify as well and to yeah, be equipped with the power of knowing the things you need to know and to be in possession of the dignity that, that good work brings. We find that, that what that results in is that the full force of the intelligence, ability, and ambition of each of our newest neighbors is brought to bear on our larger community. And, and that's really the story that we're trying to tell in these very tired times that the language of flourishing is one that our refugee neighbors bring to our cities and that they are not burdens. They are, they are blessings that every refugee we welcome is a force for the growth and advance of our cities, of our states, of our country. And I think that that's a critically important story to be telling, a truth to be demonstrating in a time when a lot of narratives 
are out there uh, telling uh, a story of danger, risk, dependency, uh, people being defined by what they don't have or what they need rather than uh, the fact that they are bringing something to our communities and that um, we are we are the ones who flourish when we welcome them. So I think I think that's a lot of why we take the angle that we take in talking about how we get to join the stories of our newest neighbors. So on joining with their stories, practically what does Friends of Refugees do on a daily basis to help facilitate this flourishing? Sure. So Friends of Refugees is a post-refugee resettlement community development organization that operates a family of six different programs uh, around the community of Clarkston uh, and, and Clarkston is the only place you'll find Friends of Refugees, and it's a very unique uh, community, uh, but it's a, it's a highly leveraged one for the work of seeing refugees flourish. And around the Clarkston area, we operate a family of, of programs that uh, all kind of rally together around uh, those goals. So we run the Refugee Career Hub, um, which is an employment center where we uh, place several hundred people a year into uh, living wage jobs, uh, kind of transitioning them from survival jobs they get when they're first resettled to uh, career pathway jobs that permanently break the poverty cycle and get them moving towards, again, bringing the, you know, the full force of their potential to bear on the community. Then we operate the Start Me Small Business Accelerator, which is a a 14-week accelerator in partnership with Emory Goisweta Business School, wherein we we run a curriculum uh, where we take the six most promising entrepreneurs in the community and surround them with 30 volunteer business mentors who essentially get together one night a week for, for 14 weeks and, and beat the ever-living daylights out of their business plans until they're, they're strong enough to survive in the wild uh, and then help them connect to the, to the networks as well as to the capital that they need to grow. Um, so over the last, um, gosh, this is our eighth year, the last seven years, we've had 99 business launches. Oh, wow. Over 80% of them are still in business today, including a dozen brick-and-mortar stores. And uh, those are not all refugees. About half our entrepreneurs are new Americans, and about half are either native-born or just local residents who are building enterprises that are making the community flourish, which accomplishes our our mission. And it's a, a great intersection. We run Refugee Family Literacy, which is an early childhood development and infant brain development program coupled with ESL and civics for moms with their pre-K kids and babies all kinds of magical things happen when, when new American moms have a command of the English language and their civic participation and falling domestic violence rates, increased earnings, and, of course, um, the literacy rates, uh, both of the moms and the kids, um, school readiness and life success. Then we also run Embrace, which is our birth program, where we have teams of labor doulas and birth coaches that walk with moms through their pregnancy and delivery in the U.S. to, to navigate uh, and otherwise fairly broken medical system, but also to close that, that knowledge gap, you know, that our moms traditionally would have inherited in their, their homelands that uh, they've been forced to flee. And, and many of them have lost access to the knowledge that they would have inherited from uh, the mothers and grandmothers who came before them that were lost to war. And so just closing that knowledge gap, as well as introducing new technologies like car seats and <laughs> prenatal vitamins and different things and just friendship. And then we also have our after-school and youth programs, which kind of run around the year and have an eight-week-long summer camp that really helps kids to 
close academic gaps and stay engaged and become emerging leaders in our community. And finally, we have our ag and nutrition programs. We run 120 family garden plots and a greenhouse system with some permaculture and agriculture training for young leaders, as well as um, nutrition classes where we help equip moms and dads through our other programs to really take advantage of some of the the new fruits and vegetables and cooking techniques that they're encountering here in the U.S. that can help them to honor the culinary heritage that they've brought with them, but also to continue to have healthy families, even as the environment around them changes and they're surrounded by more more calories as well as more low-grade calories. And, and so just helping them to be equipped with the knowledge they need to make good choices and not encounter the health challenges that'll not be conducive to their flourishing. Uh, so in a given year, we have about 1,500 volunteers that uh, join the stories of uh, about 5,000 new Americans through about 24,000 hours of service across the programs. So specifically with your status as a nonprofit, what role do you think that small local nonprofits such as Friends of Refugees can fill that other organizations can't? Well, you know, I think that small nonprofits like ours... We have some some huge economies of efficiency that come from our proximity to the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, for for example, for every dollar that's given to our employment center to steward, they're able to generate around forty dollars in residual annual wealth in the community through the job placements that they get. Because you know the the distance between that investment and the end result of that investment is really short. So I think small local nonprofits just they can leverage local resources. When um, they were about to launch a grant program, a program called Empower Clarkson, where we'll be doing some uh, green collar job training, basically doing construction skills training uh, with a stronger edge of sustainability practices, which is a real high demand space in terms of the construction companies looking for our you know, looking for employees, but, you know, they're going to be doing uh, work work service, actually doing weatherizations and, and energy efficiency upgrades for low-income homes in the community. And I was looking at <laughs> the, uh, the grantor had recommended, you know, essentially expecting to spend north of $10,000 pulling data to figure out where you know, where the most energy burdened homes are in our zip code. And, uh, and we, we took that at face value and went with it. But as we got deeper into the details, we realized, well, oh my gosh, uh, I mean, guys, our town's like, you can walk across it in 25 minutes. And we realized this is informed by a national perspective. At the end of the day, we only have to, you know, basically make a post on next door and write an email to a couple of individuals in our greater community, and we'll have a list four times as long as the grants reference list of exactly who in this community has the most energy burden home. We, we don't need census block track level data. And even if you give us that data, they would expect we're going to have to go canvas the ground, you know, to go and find those households. But we don't have to do that because we're a local organization and we have relationship capital that's able to swiftly and efficiently identify and respond to needs. So that I think that is a good example of the force multiplier effect, you know, that those small organizations have. They they know the neighborhood. And that's just 
I, I don't think until this year, I really, even in 14 years working in the refugee resettlement space, I don't think I could truly appreciate how valuable that kind of on-the-ground knowledge is when it comes to having a leveraged impact. You mentioned working for 14 years in refugee resettlement, so I wanted to ask specifically, what was your path to Friends of Refugees? So how did you, how did you get here? Yeah, so I initially, humorously enough, uh, I actually do what I went to school for. <laughs> uh, people always find it interesting when I tell them that I actually went to college to work in refugee resettlement. My, my undergraduate degree is uh, from John Brown University, where I, uh, I studied intercultural community development. And, and I really uh, did, my goal was to work in, you know, comprehensive community development or relief work, which is what I do. Right out of college, I actually had volunteered on an alternative spring break during college with World Relief Atlanta and Friends of Refugees. That was uh, 15 years ago. And uh, my wife and I, we got married spring break of our senior year of college. And that fall, we, we, we moved to Atlanta. Uh, I am from a very small town in rural Kansas. She's from Oklahoma. And we, uh, we really felt like this is what we were supposed to do with our, our time on the earth. And we... She was a, a case manager, and I worked in refugee employment for World Relief Atlanta for six years. And in the meantime, we had been volunteering with World Relief and volunteering with other, you know, nonprofits in different spaces. And long story short, we, um, I, well, I came to serve on the board of Friends of Refugees after I finished my, my MBA in uh, international business and supply chain management, which I did while I was working in refugee employment just really felt like I needed to level up my skill set to be better at navigating the relationships to place refugees and jobs. Um, I, I have had the incredible privilege of getting to place over 2,000 refugees into their first jobs in the United States through that time at World Relief and really just I couldn't, couldn't have asked for a better place to work. But I started serving on the board of Friends of Refugees in 2012 and in 2013. They asked me to step in as the executive director um, as the organization was continuing to grow. And uh, my predecessor was rolling into more of an operations director role. That's, uh, that's it in a nutshell. That's, that's how I wound up here. We've, we've lived in the neighborhood. Um, and that's, that's something that I would encourage anyone who, you know, is, is interested in a career working in change or working in the space of community transformation. It's awfully hard to commute to your calling. It is, it is very hard to sort of travel to the change you want to embody. At the same time, uh, there is, you know, the, the giver's dilemma or, you know, the, the social worker's curse. And, and, you know, and that is that, that you must have margin. You must have space to be able to uh, not burn out. You cannot be your career in some senses. So, you know, there, there's a, there's a, attention to manage there. That's not a problem to solve. It's attention to manage, but you do have to be able to create space and have rest and self-care. But at the same time, you know, if you, if you're going to be a truly effective agent for change, it's awfully hard to do it from a distance. Uh, so that, you know, the fact that we, we were, were very often good friends with our clients. When we worked at World Relief, you know, they were our neighbors. When they had a roach problem, we had a roach problem. You know, it, it was less of a dissonance 
and that that's for good and for ill. You know, when you have uh, individuals who are struggling or have you know major challenges with their uh, PTSD or any of a number of things, that you know the drama of life will be your drama, and that that can be exhausting. But I think what's even richer is that you get to be a part of the the life of the community beyond say, you know, your 180 days of case management. You get to be there. I just this week, uh, or last night, actually, I got invited to uh, the wedding of one of my uh, employment clients who is still actually working at the same company where I placed him seven years ago. And uh, he's leveled up many times in the company and is doing great. And he, he uh, found my uh, phone number, which hasn't changed in 20 years, and called me up and texted me a little invite to the wedding. And you know, it, it, there's just a certain joy in that and, and that you don't get from a clinical distance. And you get to step out of that. Well, I hate it's not intentional, but to step out of the service provider's paradigm where you are always the one giving and others the ones receiving, you, and you get to step into a reciprocity of giving and receiving. Often I'm receiving hospitality and I'm giving knowledge or networks, or I am, you know, giving an expertise I might have, but I'm receiving of the time and attention of an individual who may be more time rich and getting into those communities where you're exchanging currencies of time and talent and resources and and influence. That's really where, where change becomes sustainable and resilient and where uh, communities really flourish. You just can't, you, you just can't have a community where uh, the relationships are, are one way and patriarchal. So to speak to that a little bit more, drawing on your own experiences and then also what you've witnessed, what can and should communities do to surround the refugees that are entering or even when they've been there for a while? Talk a little bit more about that symbiotic relationship. You know, there's a lot of different techniques and strategies that have been deployed by the refugee resettlement agencies down through the years to successfully see refugees integrate uh, into American life. And I think there's been merit to most all of them. Bad ideas seem to have short life cycles in the world of resettlement in many ways, and the environment is always changing. I think probably one of the most critical sort of non-negotiables is some kind of structured means by which to deliver friendship. And I don't say that just as like, you know, hey, look, friends of refugees. No, I, I, I mean, I, I do mean that all, all, all brand and story apart. The number one desire that we have as human beings is belonging. That is a universal human trait to have belonging. Um, and it's possible for organizations that work in creating refuge to turn into process some means by which, in one context, the, the facilitating of friendship is one of the core things you do. And I think that whatever that has to look like, it is one of the things you must do. And it's always a process of continuous evaluation because what facilitates friendship is different for different cultures that come to our communities. It's different for different macroeconomic conditions in our communities. It's different for different stages of life 
for our community members and how you facilitate friendship across the stages of our lives is is different. Uh, so I guess I wouldn't want to be overly prescriptive about that, but I would want to say that the you know the the compass should always point to is this leading to friendships building between our newest neighbors and those who have been here longer. What you're also watching is carefully not me saying native-born Americans and first-generation immigrants. Like, Mm -hmm. no, there's a lot more gradation there than that. You should be seeing uh, those who once you served serving beside you and in the future leading you. Um, that, That is absolutely, you know, markers of success. Uh, and so, you know, those, those, those guidelines are all there, but I think none of them can be missed by saying, is, is this strategy, this tactic, this initiative, this program, is it resulting in more friendships? And I don't think you're going to go super wrong if you're, if you're nailing that one. Um, circling back to Friends of Refugees as an organization, what are some of your goals for what the future of this organization looks like? Or do you have any, any ideas for growth or do you think it's going strong now? Or what like, where do you see it going in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, in the future, we'd really like to see the organization have the opportunity to steward some, some bigger bets on innovation in community development that we have not yet had the opportunity to, you know, and that's a, that's a tactful way of saying, um, we've got a number of, of great ideas and frankly, very well proven, uh, tactics that we could scale given the opportunity to steward larger, either philanthropic investments or, being given the opportunity to have some equity stakes in some of the value creation that our activities do in the general market, such as if we have the opportunity to have an equity stake in some of the manufacturing that happens in our own community or that could happen more, having an equity stake in some of the apartment properties wherein many of our uh, community members live and the you know market success of which our programs operated well dramatically enhances. So it doesn't all have to be charity, but at the end of the day, you know, the wealth that we create is not wealth that we usually um, are part of capturing and cycling back into an investment. So I would say ways that we can attach the outcomes to mechanisms that will give us then the opportunity to invest more significant resources in scaling that, that, that effort. You know, like just last year, our employment center, the job placements we did generated north of $7 million in new wealth in the community. That's annual residual income. And, you know, the amount of that that we are able to influence to be reinvested as charitable contributions by those companies was, you know, about 1% of 1% of that, that value creation. And we have no we have no entitlement to that, but if we were at the table of, of those equity stakes, then we would have the opportunity to say, imagine what we could do with ten times this. We could move the poverty level in our zip code by double digit percentages in less than seven years. 
so I, I think that's the kind of things that I think about when I think about scale. Uh, and I think about what comes next is the opportunity to say, okay, we've been, we've been working several of these problems for, you know, this is our 25th anniversary this year as an organization. You know, we've been working a number of these problems for, you know, 20 plus years and we have very good approaches. And I think we're at a place where we are looking forward to opportunities to, you know, scale those up and share those with others to go and run with. We're always very open-handed with our playbook and say, uh, go and do likewise or go and do better than we're doing and report back to us so we can do better too. Uh, so I was wanted to ask you, as a Georgian, are you concerned by Governor Kemp's silence on whether Georgia is going to continue to accept refugees? That's an interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting. So question. I'm going to jump back in here for some context. In September of last year, President Trump issued an executive order requiring local officials, from city council members to governors, to approve admittance of refugees to their state. Every state but Texas, Georgia, and South Carolina has approved placement of refugees, either formally or informally. Texas denied the placement, and Georgia and South Carolina's governors have remained silent on giving approval for their state. Since recording this episode, though, an injunction from a federal judge in Maryland has barred this executive order from affecting refugee resettlement for the time being. According to an article from NPR, U.S. District Judge Peter Messite said that the executive order does not appear to serve in the overall public interest, and it flies in the face of clear congressional intent. Okay, now back to the interview. You know, I mean, as an organization, we don't have a, a specific... Uh, opinion or voice on all of these things. Uh, as you can imagine, we have stakeholders and volunteers uh, from every lens of perspective. I, I, I think it would be, at, at a bare minimum, completely fair to say that the data indicates that refugees who start their new journeys in Georgia are a boon to Georgia's economy. And to, to turn down or ignore the opportunity to receive that investment is one that does not make market sense and is not in the enlightened self-interest of the, the state. You know, refugees are more than twice as likely as a native-born American to start a job-creating enterprise here. The, the security record of refugees resettled who have gone through the, the vetting process, the resettlement system, is without question. It, it is superior to that of any other form of immigration or, or national safety vetting. And the list goes on. So I think there's, there's kind of a fundamental mischaracterization of the question of welcoming refugees who are being, you know, launched into early self-sufficiency by the resettlement process. And I, I just, uh, all, all arguments of compassion and moral leadership and American values completely set aside, strictly from a market standpoint, I, it is, it's literally like turning down free growth, development, and new job opportunity by failing to make that welcome known. I think, I think that's, that's a, a very unfortunate missed opportunity for growth. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I think at a bare minimum, from all perspectives, I think everyone should be able to factually rally to that uh, defendable fact. Yeah. I was reading some statistics a few weeks ago about how upwardly mobile refugees are and how they 
reach after, I think, 25 years, they're making essentially the median income for Americans. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's it's pretty astounding how upwardly mobile they are and how, well, how and hard they know, work once the, they get here. We, when we, yeah, and when we talk about upward mobility, it, it, it can quickly be twisted and perverted into the idea that they're going to compete with us for our jobs and they're going to work circles around us and so our kids aren't going to have as good a work opportunities. But there is no economist with a straight face who would tell you that that stands to inspection because it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, suffice it to say, uh, refugees and other new Americans don't fight to take a piece of the pie. They help us bake a larger pie. That is the magic of a free market. Is that it's not a zero-sum game. And when you get hardworking, industrious, and frankly, any new heartbeats, the inevitable trend we see throughout our modern history has been one of an enlarged, of a bigger pie. And so, yeah, that industriousness is not one that's going to out-compete. It's one that's going to co-work with us to create a greater flourishing and more opportunities for all of us. And, and that's, I think, why I am always saddened to see this straw man of taking away jobs somehow continues to, to gain traction, you know, on small anecdotes that never stand up to scrutiny. Do you have any personal examples of your experience of anecdotes that instead of countering why we should bring refugees in, prove that we should? Well, you know, I, I think one of the most easy to go and fact check is that a an inordinate percentage of the S&P 500 were created by first and second generation immigrants. Like a dramatic, dramatic percentage of the S&P 500 companies were started by first and second generation new Americans. You know, they're the most economically generative forces in our uh, nation today, they're, they're immigrant stories. But on the ground level, yes, I mean, let, you know, go look at our small business accelerator, right? I mean, you're, there's dozens and dozens of, of our neighbors who, while also working, you know, the nine to five or five to five uh, <laughs> jobs in the factories are hustling to generate new economic activities that are going to not only create greater opportunity and wealth building activities for themselves and their families, but for their neighbors and the generations that will follow as they become a part of that lifeblood of American, you know, economics, which is the small business. Well, I know you have a meeting to get to it for. Thank you for sitting down with me today. Do you have any closing comments, anything you'd like to tell our listeners? about friends of refugees or just anything that's on your mind? I guess I would say that, you know, from the, the very first day that our founder, Miss Pat Maddox, who's the, the mother Teresa of Clarkston, that she realized that she could make a difference by being a friend to refugees. There's not been a single day where that decision has been one that has proven anything less than life-giving. I think that in these very divided times, I would encourage listeners 
not to necessarily look to information and facts to change people's minds about the things about which they disagree. I would instead suggest that at the end of the day, what changes people's minds is relationships, is friendships. And so um, if someone you know struggles to welcome their newest neighbors, it's more likely going to be a friendship that changes that, not a list of facts about <laughs> the, the benefits and advantages of welcoming new Americans. So I would say that, yeah, friendship, friendship is the key. And I think that we have to be careful never to forget that we were made for belonging and it's in that belonging that we find community and it's in community that we flourish. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. Thank you again for your time. Friends of Refugee sounds like a really amazing organization with a lot of really tangible results in Clarkston, which I think Clarkston itself is a, is a testament to the prosperity that comes from, from having a community that's dedicated to, to each other and to friendship, like you said. Well, I appreciate your encouragement and I'm grateful that you all are investing of your time to create some refuge. And I, I hope that uh, you two will find that you are the ones who are receiving the benefit as you are endeavoring to be a benefit to others. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seeking Refuge. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or follow us at Refuge Podcast on Twitter. A big thanks to Maxi International House for making the show possible and for Brian Bollinger for taking some time to talk to us today. Our next episode will be out in two weeks on March 16th. We'll see you then.